Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have another wonderful guest, and I don't know, sometimes I corral my guests from all, all parts of the world. So thank you for being here, Mr. Patrick Ricards. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Martina. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great discussion today. Love your yes. podcast. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I, you have a really amazing history. You've, you've done just about everything. I'm going to go over some of it. Some of the stuff we'll go over in the course of the, our discussion today because you're, you've done so much. You're an author and you, you, pr you produce a lot of content in a lot of area. You've written for major articles for major papers and outlets. And, and you've been featured on CBS as part of some of the work you do with your organization. So we're going to go through that. So you're the CEO of Life After Hate. It's a leader in violence prevention and intervention. It's a nonprofit that helps people leave extremist groups. Uh, I have to go over this. Yeah, well, you have to explain this later. You're the coolest. You have the coolest dad around label. So we got to get into that. Um, you're a leader in strategic management, communication, and you're an engagement uh, expert. You're a award-winning author. Um, you have a you you created um, a program that specifically deals with how to push out and how to teach American history and civics. We're going to get into that. I looked at some of your YouTube videos. They're absolutely excellent, by the way. Um, you have a nationally rec recognized author, as I said before, and you, you have a book called Dad Provement, which I really want you to get into later on. I think it's amazing. Specifically, it's about how to create a family with adoption, adoption correct? Correct. Yep. And, and I think this is before you've written articles for the USA Today, the Washington Post, and New York Times. You have your BA from the University of Virginia. You have a certificate uh, from Stanford University in leadership, and you're getting your doctorate at the University of Southern California. Fight on. Is there anything I've missed, Patrick, because you've done so much? No, I, I think you, you, you've, you've, you've really hit it. We'll get into some of it, uh, I think, as you're talking about. You know, the, the coolest dad in, in the country uh, is one of those labels that I wear with the most pride simply because it, it came from coaching my daughter's competition cheer squad for four years. So if you can imagine spending four years with 19 tween and teen girls. Uh, that's, that's my experience. I wear it with pride. Yeah. I think um, it's funny because you, you've got some notoriety around that on the internet. So uh, and when people uh, bring up your name, that seems to come up. So we'll have to get into that. So that, so let me ask you, so where were you born and raised? So I was actually born in Buffalo, New York. Um, I tend to describe myself, I am a higher education brat. My father was a college professor, ended up becoming a college dean, then a provost, then actually a college president. And so we moved around the country. Like every three or four years, we were in a different place. So I went from Buffalo, and then my parents and I spent uh, nine months in Tokyo, Japan. And then we were back in the States. We lived in back in New York. We lived in Princeton, New Jersey. We lived in Massachusetts. We lived uh, back in New Jersey. We lived in New Mexico. We lived in West Virginia all before I even went off to college. Now, were you your only child? I am the oldest of three. I've got uh, a sister. Uh, the middle child of the three is actually a lawyer by trade. She used to be a juvenile prosecutor in New York City. Uh, she now works uh, for Barnes & Noble Corporate in, in their investigations department. And then uh, the baby of the family, my youngest sister, is actually a jazz singer in Chicago. So your, your dad was a professor. What was he a professor in? Uh, my dad was, uh, he's, uh, he was a professor of political science. He is a presidential historian by trade. 
Uh, my mom uh, ended up, once I hit high school, my mother became a high school English teacher. Uh, you know, it's one of those funny things. I always laugh, you know, people say, where did you go to school? And yeah, I got my, I graduated from the University of Virginia. Uh, the funny thing is I first started taking classes at Buffalo State when I was about two months old, uh, where after my dad had started teaching, my mom decided to get her college degree. And so she would bring me as a baby uh, onto campus and, and I would sit there next to her as she was trying to get a degree. Uh, so that, that was where I got started. And then what was your relationship like with your siblings and your parents growing up? Well, I think it's one of those things, I mean, moving around as much as we did, um, you know, you, you sort of are forced to become very close as a family unit. I mean, it becomes really hard to have to start and build new friend relationships every three or four years when you move. And there's, you know, there's nobody, you know, you're having to start fresh. Uh, and so, you know, my, I've got one sister who's just three years younger than I am. We've got another who's, you know, the baby in the family is eight years younger than I am. Uh, so she sort of came around a little bit later. Uh, but, uh, you know, with, with my sisters, we have a good relationship. And the two of them are thick as thieves now, far more than when they were kids. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I'm very close to my parents, have been since the very beginning. I still uh, go to visit them at least once a month now that I'm living in South Carolina. And, you know, it's, it's, but it's one of those odd experiences. I mean, we, we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico when I was 14. It was my dad's first college presidency. And uh, you know, there's a huge difference between being the child of a college professor and being the child of a college president, because you know, you're forced to take on some other roles and responsibilities. And so you know, when I was in high school, you know, I would go to events on campus with my parents. You'd have to sit there and play adult and you know, chat with professors and those sorts of things. You also, it, it's I always used to say, you know, growing up as a, the son of a college president, I think is much like growing up the son of a preacher or a pastor, because you have, particularly in small towns, like every eye is on you. And I, I still remember when we were in West Virginia, um, you know, we lived on a, in a house on campus and you would have people in town that would notice when my youngest sister would change the stuffed animals in her bedroom window people would actually say something to my parents. So you're, you're, you're living in that sort of level uh, of scrutiny and observation. And it just, it shapes who you become and it shapes, quite frankly, who you can trust. Can you explain more about that? Sure. I, it, it, it's one of those, it's, 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 I think, particularly when my dad was a college president, you, you would have some friends um, that you would make, make naturally. And I still remember in high school in West Virginia, my best friend was Mark Thompson. Uh, he had transferred into the high school, same time I did. We both transferred in as juniors. Um, and it was, you know, we, we, just, we just had that instant connection. And it didn't matter if, if my dad was driving a truck. It didn't matter if my dad was a college president. It didn't matter what my father did. Uh, but you would also have people that, you know, their parents were professors on campus. And so you could never quite trust, like, do they actually want to be friends with me or are they indirectly trying to suck up for their parents so that I can go back and say, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, so-and-so's son was, is really great. And, you know, my, one of my sisters dealt the worst in that. I mean, she literally had a boyfriend uh, who I, to this day, will say, use their relationship so that he could get my father to help him get a scholarship to college. Um, you know, so it's that sort of thing. You just never quite know 
the level of trust you're having. Um, you never know if people, you know, it's, 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 it sounds corny and you always hear people complaining about this and you hear, you know, when you hear those, the billionaires who are complaining, you never know if people like me for me or if they like me for my money. Um, it was always that same thing as a kid. You just didn't learn. You, you had a hard time trusting folks. I mean, when I was a younger kid, when my dad was working in New York City, he was a professor. He was working at uh, Hunter College and became provost. But none of the college community was anywhere near our town in Jersey. And so, you know, I had those buddies in middle school that, you know, we played baseball each and every day. None of them give a damn what my parents were doing for a living. Um, you know, the, the biggest issue we had is just about every I, I grew up in an Italian-American community in Jersey. Just about every one of my friends was a New York Yankees fan. I was a Mets fan. Broke my father. It still breaks my father's heart to this day that I'm a Mets fan, not a Yankees fan. Um, but that was the sort of life that you had. No, it, it was it was much easier then. Uh, and then, you know, as I got older and as my father's position changed, you know, it's it's a weird thing when, you know, you can sit there and your parents are on the front page of the local newspaper. You know, I remember, you know, my my dad's first college presidency. We were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, he was the first full time president of St. John's College in Santa Fe. And one of the things he desperately believed in in taking over that job was he had an obligation to open up a college that was largely lily white rich kids from the East Coast that were moving to New Mexico to get a cultural experience. And he felt an obligation to make sure that the Latino and the Native American populations in Santa Fe were attending his school. They weren't just there where you could descend from the hill to visit the populations when you wanted to. He wanted them to be part of the college community. And it became a major issue. It's one of the reasons why he left that job. And it's, it's one of those odd things where you're literally seeing your parents fight with the board uh, on the front page of the daily newspaper. You know, there, there aren't a whole lot of people that know how to experience that. What was it like? I know that it sounds like, was it a stressful situation for you? And did, were you doing well in school? Because you moving around is difficult sometimes. What was that transition for you like? Was it pressure that, that you had to do well because you're the, your parent is a, is a university president? I think that there's always pressure that, yeah, your dad's the college president. Of course, you're going to have to do well. And then, you know, when, when we moved to West Virginia, my mother taught in the same high school that I attended. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. And, and I used to always laugh when we were in West Virginia. You know, I was um, I was captain of our high school academic team. We had a closed high school campus and the faculty advisor for the academic team was our uh, assistant principal. And she desperately wanted us to win the trophy. So it meant I got a lot of latitude. So. My buddy Mark and I used to sign out for lunch all the time and like just leave campus for a couple hours to just go do our thing. And uh, at one point, my mother got upset because she would see the sign out sheets and couldn't understand how her son was able to sign out each and every day without her permission. And so she finally went to the assistant principal and she complained, said, I don't understand how you're letting him out. I'm not giving him permission to leave campus. And so the compromise the assistant principal had was she would simply still let me leave campus. She just never put me on the sign out sheet. She was like, okay, that's fine. Just, just go. Um, and so, you know, that you, you, so you, you learn to get away with things like that. You know, if I, if I weren't who I was, I wouldn't be able to get away with stuff like that. Um, but you know, it's one of those that you know, it's, if you look at a lot of colleges and universities, you tend to 
be based in towns that are that offer relatively mediocre public schools. And I am very proudly a product of mediocre public schools. I have my high school diploma from Jefferson County Consolidated High School in Shenandoah Junction, West Virginia. Um, not exactly going to be on the top of any list in terms of the best public high schools in the country. Um, so, you know, it was one of those things. I, I learned how to, I learned how to do enough to succeed, but not too much where I had to break much of a sweat uh, and knew where my strengths were. Like I could write, I could talk my way out of something. Um, you know, and that, that tended to be where I gravitated to. What becomes very funny though, is that, you know, when I went off to college, I had no idea what to expect when I went to college because it was 180 degrees from anything I had experienced in high school. Um, and it wasn't until I was like halfway through college uh, you know, when you're talking about sort of you know, how, how do you achieve and that sort of stuff. And I had my struggles in college. I really did. Uh, and then I I addressed them by simply deciding I was going to stop going to classes and direct my attentions to the daily student newspaper where I actually knew what I was doing and, and was enjoying what I was doing. And I was taking a class uh, my sophomore year. And I remember I had a professor pull me aside and he said, do you realize you're dyslexic? I said, no, never. I said, I, I, I came here. I was, I was an honor student when I came here. He says, yeah, I want you to go down to the resource center because you need to be tested. Um, and so sophomore year of college, I all of a sudden dis discover that I'm dyslexic. Had no idea. Nobody had ever seen it before because I always knew how to compensate. You know, I always knew how to get around. And, and to, to the point where even in college, I assumed the way I consumed information and, you know, some of the struggles I would have with reading and that sort of stuff, I just assumed that was normal because, I mean, I'm an old enough dude that we didn't talk about those things. Hey, Patrick, and can you explain, can you, can you explain what dys dyslexia is really quickly for our, sure. our listeners that don't know what that is? Sure. So dyslexia is just, it's, it's where your brain has a hard time learning to read. Uh, and it, it look it sees letters, it sees words, it sees sentences different than the average bear. And so, you know, it's one of those that, uh, you know, you can I, I can sit there, I can read things. Um, and if I'm not very careful about what I read, my brain sees words that aren't there. Um, you know, the, the, the perfect example, I, I still joke about it when I was an adult. I remember seeing uh, very quickly looking at a, at a news article online. Uh, and it said something like, you know, army prepares for invasion. But the way my brain saw it and first read was Arby's prepares for invasion. And so you got to like stop yourself and go, whoa, OK, that's probably not right. I don't think we're going to war over roast beef. So then I've got to look at it. And so it, it it's one of those I, I have to read differently than other people do and even skim differently than other people do. And unfortunately, you know, my, my son's going to be 17 next month. He's got the same problem. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it, at least I've experienced it. But it's it's one of those you start learning different people who, you know, who have experienced it. I, I you know, years ago used to work as an advisor for the, the former governor of West Virginia. And he was severely dyslexic. And, you know, the way he's much older than I am. And so the way his parents dealt with it was every day he had to sit down and read the dictionary. You know, they weren't going to give him any absolution because of his learning disabilities either. And so that was how he dealt with it. But what it means is like, I'm somebody, I spend 
a good part of my professional life over the last 25 years, I do public speaking. Uh, I speak at events. I speak at colleges. I do all. I, I speak to the media. I do all of that stuff. I can't use a prepared speech. Like if you asked me to deliver a speech using a PowerPoint and notes, I would be just a blathering idiot. Um, and you know, I, I've gone in and I've done three-hour keynote speeches where all I have is a single index card with like a dozen words so I can track what I want to say. But that's that's the way that my brain has to do it. Um, and it's, as I said, it, it becomes one of those fascinating things where you go in and you just assume everybody's learning like you are, you know, I'm, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, I'm getting A's. I, I must, I must be smart. I must know what I'm doing is I'm not possibly suffering from a learning disability. Look at my report card. Um, but then you get to college and realize, okay, this is a little different. Um, and you, you know, as I said, you, it's like anything else. You learn how to overcome it in your own way. There's no textbook that says, this is what you do to stop being dyslexic. I'll be dyslexic all my life. Um, I just know how to deal with it. And the way I deal with it is going to be very different than the way somebody else is going to deal with it. And who were your role models growing up? Did you do well in school growing up? And did you, did you know what you wanted to study when you <laughs> went to college? I did not. I didn't know what I wanted to study. It, it's one of those. I mean, my, my parents were obviously important, very important role models in my life. Uh, they're both educators, as I said. And it was one of those. I used to have friends that, you know, you'd get paid for a good report card. Like if you had all A's, you'd get this. And I remember, you know, my, my mother at a very early age made very clear to me, you earn grades for yourself. We're not going to give you anything for them. And I remember thinking, okay, so if I get C's, that's fine. She's like, no, nope, not if you're not doing your best. If you're not giving it all you have, that's still not good enough. Uh, and so, you know, as, as you know, like most kids, you know, when I was when I was young, I mean, my my role models were baseball players. Um, you know, I I wanted I I was a first baseman until high school. I wanted to be like Keith Hernandez. I wanted to be like Don Mattingly. Um, and then as I got older, you know, I was trying to figure, it's one of those, you figure out what you want to do. And, you know, I, I went off to college originally thinking I wanted to study economics because that sounds important. Um, I got to college and realized that economics is boring as shit. Plus, you got to know a lot of math. Uh, and that just wasn't for me. I took one econ class and realized I, I need out. Um and so, you know, I was fortunate my first year of college, uh, I took a class in the U.S. Congress. And one of the things they wanted us to do is we had to write a paper based on a pending piece of legislation. Uh, and I remember, you know, cold calling our senator's office and I got the opportunity to go to D.C. and interview one of their legislative L.A.'s um, about the paper. And it was great. And at the end of it all, he's just sort of, well, have you ever thought of interning on the Hill? I'm like, no, didn't even know such thing was possible. You know, up until that point, my summers had been spent working at a Ponderosa steakhouse, trying to earn money for, for living on college campus. And uh, so after my freshman year, I ended up getting an, an internship just for a month on Capitol Hill. Uh, and it, it sort of, the bug bit me. And so every other summer during college, I got that intern, I got a different internship in a different office. And so as I was getting ready to graduate from college, I did what I thought everybody who goes to a school like UVA who's going to graduate with a liberal arts degree does. I'm going to go to law school. Right. That's what everybody does. Um, 
And I was asked, as I was getting ready to graduate from college, I was asked if I would come be the interim press secretary for, for Robert C. Byrd, the senior senator from West Virginia. I had interned for him. He knew me. He trusted me. I knew how the office worked. His press secretary was going on maternity leave. So they needed somebody just for a few months. I'm like, great, cool. I'll, I can do that. And uh, I got to the Hill and it hit me about a month or two in that I intended to spend three years at law school and spend a huge sum of money to get a degree that would bring me back to where I was at that moment. Um, so I never went to law school. Uh, I ended up staying on the Hill. I ended up working on political campaigns uh, and you know, was very fortunate to work for you know, a couple of senators, to work for a congressman. Uh, who, you know, I just, I really trusted, I, I really respected. And I think it's, I've thought several times about going back to the Hill for work. And the problem was finding elected officials that I respected as much as those that I worked for. Uh, and I think, and that's, that's the hard thing. I mean, when I decided I was going to stay on the Hill after I graduated from college, once the interim job was over, I went to go work for Bill Bradley. Um, and had, you know, just, it, it was an incredible learning experience. It was so different than anything I had done on the Hill before. And I remember, you know, I'm sitting there and, and Bill's interviewing me for the job. And it sort of dawns on him that I was just two years older than his daughter. Um, and, you know, I had started the job and he pulled me into his office. And I'm like, oh, crap, I must have done something wrong. And he had wanted to let me know this was 1996, 1995. He decided he was going to retire. He was not going to run again in 1996. And we had talked about the campaign as part of my interview. And so he was going to give me the out. Uh, but uh, no, it was just, it, I learned so much from working from people like that, uh, that uh, that's, that's always been what I've sought and, and never quite find again. So when you worked on the Capitol, what kind of stress did you have there? And how do you deal with that stress? Well, it, it's one of those, I, we, when you're working, when you're working in Congress, I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the fact that it is a town and it is an institution that is largely run by people in their in their early and mid twenties. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, it just is. I mean, you're in, yeah, I remember my first job, my first full time job, I was making twenty two thousand dollars a year. I thought it was more money than I would ever see in my life. Uh, and had no qualms whatsoever working 50, 60, 80 hours a week to do what I needed to do. Uh, I just completely threw myself into it. And so, you, yeah, you felt the stresses. But most of the stresses, particularly, I, 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 was a, I was a Hill communications director. And so most of the stresses that came were largely self-inflicted because you wanted to constantly prove yourself. You wanted to constantly show your boss that you were the right person for that job. You wanted to constantly show other offices that in the event that they're going to be looking to hire somebody, that you're one of those people they'd want to talk to. Uh, you know, you wanted to constantly be pushing. Um, and so, you know, that was part of what I did. I mean, it was the nature of my job. You know, when you're working on the Hill, you always have, at least back then, you know, you always had that notion that when your boss went back home to the district, you got to relax some. I never got to relax because when my boss went back to the district, I always had to go back with him. Uh, and so at one point I was, I was working for a congressman from Massachusetts, John Olver. He just passed away last week. And, you know, I, but I worked for him for years. And it's one of those things that you know, I, 
I helped run his reelection campaign in 1996. It was the closest reelection campaign for an incumbent in the country that year. And I can tell you in the three years that I worked for John, the most stressful thing for me was as a staffer, you always had to drive your boss around the district, right? I did not know how to drive a stick shift yet. And so it was one of those, I had to go out with another staffer and on John's beat up Volkswagen had to learn how to drive a stick because that was part of my job. And I, I, I learned to drive one very poorly, but I could get by if I had to. Um, but it's those sorts of things. I mean, it, it's, I think when you're, when you're 22, 23, 24 years old, you don't realize the stresses that you're dealing with. Um, you know, because it's all lumped in together. You know, you're dealing with the fact that this is your first real job. You know, you're having to pay the rent for the first time. You're responsible for paying your taxes. Um, you're trying to figure out if it's even worth having a relationship or do you just throw yourself into work? You know, all of that, because, you know, in many ways, the things that were stressful when you were an intern, I mean, I, I still remember you know, I, I was fortunate as a Capitol Hill intern that I had bosses that insisted they had to pay you something. Um, so, you know, I would get, a, I think, a monthly stipend of $500 a month, um, which meant I couldn't afford to live in Washington, D.C. So I used to take the train from my parents' house in West Virginia into D.C. every day and then take the train back. Um, and so that train ticket cost me 200 bucks, like a $500 stipend. I lost $100 to taxes. 200 bucks had to go to my train ticket. That gave me $200 to make it through the month. And uh, there used to be a restaurant on Capitol Hill that had this, uh, as a Hill staffer, it was always great because at night you could go to receptions and get free food and free drink and all that. But there was a restaurant on Capitol Hill that from 11 to 2, they had an all-you-could-eat buffet that was all-you-could-eat salad, pizza, and banana pudding. Don't ask me how the three get together, but they did and so it was like five bucks. And so as an intern, you would time it just right where you'd go at like one o'clock and you would have the largest lunch of pizza and banana pudding you could ever imagine. And then you hope that that was just going to get you through the rest of the day. And usually it did. So that was what you stressed about. You didn't stress about the work unless you were worried about your boss getting reelected. So. I'm going to ask you kind of a question a little bit on this topic. And um, I know that during the time period that you worked on a Hill, that it was more of a collegial environment, even though you might have been from separate parties, there was a, a sense that everybody was basically working for the same thing. Um, can you describe that atmosphere because you were sure. in it as opposed to now is it, is it, is it significantly different? It is, it is. It, it's a great question. I will tell you. So it, it's one of those, you know, because I was a press secretary, I was a communications director. I tended to be the public face. Uh, and so, you know, that would often mean on a Saturday morning, I would have to get up and I would go down to the C-SPAN offices and C-SPAN every Saturday morning would have this feature where they would have a congre two congressional staffers, one Democrat, one Republican, and we'd essentially fight with each other on the air uh, for a half an hour on you know, the issues of the day. Um, and you, you know, it, it would get heated. It would get vitriolic. I mean, it was what it was. It's what we expect in politics. I and mean, you expect that you're going to have those sorts of fights. But when it was over, 
um, you know, we would finish up our session and then I could go out with a, a press secretary for the other party and we would go get a burger together. Um, and then you just, I mean, you had those relationships, you knew each other, you respected each other. Um, and usually, you know, the, the big divisions in, in Washington at that time, at least when you were on the Hill, was whether you were Senate or whether you were House. And so, you know, you would go, you know, if it was after hours, there were certain bars that did happy hours that if you were a House staffer, that's where you went. There were others that would do it for Senate staffers. And, you know, if you were a House staffer, you would never dare go to a Senate happy hour. Um, you know, that, I mean, it, it quickly devolved into what we see now where it's far more blood sport. Uh, you know, you see far more, you know, it is, you know, you're, you're never going to see an individual break bread with somebody from the other party. I mean, because if you do, people are going to be fearful. You must be up to something somehow if you're willing to sit down and have, and have a burger or, or share a pizza with somebody from the other party. Heaven forbid you have drinks together. Um, you know, now everything is, is so suspect. And, you know, it, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I've said for a long time, and, and it helps having worked for Senator Byrd. He was chairman of the Appropriations Committee. Democrats and Republicans got along because we had earmarks which was essentially a process every year when they set the budget, members of Congress could put specific line items to fund specific projects in their districts or their states. And regardless of who was in charge, you would work together to make sure that everybody got a little taste, right? So you fast forward to, what was it? I think the late, late 90s, early aughts, that all of a sudden they decided that you know these earmarks are are pork. They're they're bad for the budget. We're just spending money willy nilly on things that don't deserve it. And so when that happened, you lost a lot of that congeniality. Uh, you know, you lost you know both sides working together. It's like yeah, we're not going to pass major legislation together because you still dislike the other party. But on those things, you made sure that. Even as parties, you know, as, as control of Congress changed between Democrats and Republicans that kept flipping back and forth, you were still taking care of each other. Uh, so there was some level of, of, of conversation. There. You just don't get that anymore. I mean, I, I look at, as I said, I, I, I still remember the 1996 campaign very, very well. Um, you know, we my, my boss was running against a state senator in Massachusetts. She was very, very popular, moderate Republican. Um, and I spent a year um, beating the crap out of her in the media. Uh, you know, I, my, my boss in the previous election cycle had been burned with some bad opposition research. He had attacked his opponent for something that wasn't true. So as a result, 96 campaign, my boss refused to talk to the media. I was the one to the point where it was a joke with his supporters that the congressman had changed his name to overspokesman Patrick Rickards because that's what you'd see in the media all the time. And so it was, you know, to the point where when the election was over and we had won, one of, one of the local newspapers gave me an, an award uh, for taking the campaign to a, a new level of vitriol that the district had never seen before. Um, so you fast forward a couple years and the, the state senator that we beat, um, she ended up getting elected as Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. She then went on to become Governor of Massachusetts. Uh, and after she became governor, um, she and I actually became really good friends. We are to this day. Uh, you know, I've gone and I've guest lectured in her classes when she's taught them at, at Boston College, when she's taught them at Williams. 
Um, and, you know, it provides her students a unique perspective to understand how both of these sides work. But I don't think you can get away with that anymore. I think that's just, I mean, that, that's, that's the way we lived. Um, you know, she, I was fortunate that she was willing to forgive me. Um, it took a while for her husband, and, and, and unfortunately her husband passed away a little over a year ago. Uh, I don't know if her father ever forgave me for the things I said about his daughter. Uh, but she and I have gotten around that and have become really good friends to the point where uh, 2008, I'm encouraging her to run for the U.S. Senate and like laid out um, you know, how she could win the race, even, even though she was a Republican and I was a Democrat. Hey, Patrick, let me ask you a question. I, I, I'm going to kind of diverge a little bit because there's other things I want to get into for sure. But if you had to give somebody advice, if they were wanted to be, how do you communicate effectively with people? And how do you fashion things in a way that's that's palatable for for people to understand if it's something negative? So if, if somebody how do you fashion that? What's the process that you go through? if you're in an organization where you can give information out while protecting your organization at the same time, you're giving out truthful information, but how do you, how do you go about developing that? That's number one. And the second part of it, cause I only really have like 30 minutes left. So I, there's a lot of questions that have come up for me now <laughs> is if you can give everybody out there, since you're a great communicator. And like I said, you've written for your university, you've written articles in newspapers. So it's, I guess it's a two part question. One is, how do you fashion those arguments? How do you communicate effectively? And it kind of segues into the other question is, what are the top two or three things that you would do to suggest if you're communicating effectively? What were those things and how would you go about doing and developing those sure. skills? Well, I think your, your first question is one of the things that you constantly have as a communicator is you have this battle in terms of whether you're trying to win over hearts and minds. Uh, and the simple fact is, if you're trying to deliver negative information, you're winning over hearts. Uh, you know, you're, you're focusing on something. You're, you're essentially helping people see that there is something wrong or there is something they should fear and that it is very real and that we have a good sense of who's to blame for. It. That's how you sell negative information. Um, and, you know, we always say, oh, it's so awful that we spend so much time talking negativity, particularly in political campaigns. We do it because it works. Um, you know, nobody wants to hear about your biography anymore. They want to talk about what that, you know, what your opponent's doing and how awful he is, uh, because we're hoping that you're going to, if you don't like me, you at least realize I'm not as bad as the other guy. Uh, and so, you know, when you're going through all of that, I think you know, the most important thing is you're trying to communicate it is really understanding one, you have to communicate on a very personal level. There's no one monolith way to deliver information, good or bad, that everybody's going to understand. So you have to be able to break it down by stakeholder. You have to understand where their pain points are. You have to understand where their concerns are and you have to deliver it. And part of that requires, and this, this becomes odd for communicators, is it requires a great deal of active listening. Um, you know, I'm not a used car salesman where I can go in and sell you just about anything. What I do is I listen as you're explaining your priorities, your needs, your concerns, your fears, and then I respond to that. And if you look at folks, you know, you look at those communicators who struggle, they're the ones that as you, Fig, are talking, I'm going through my head thinking, through, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to talk about next? That doesn't work. Um, you know, it, it, it's completely ineffective, but it's the way that so many people uh, experience it. So if you are communicating something, what are the top two or three things that advice would you give somebody if they were 
giving a presentation, what are the most important things that, that somebody can do to present information? Keep it simple. Um, never assume that your audience knows more than they do. It's better, it's better to, to repeat what you need to repeat to lay the foundation than to assume they know exactly what you're talking about. Um, never overestimate the intellect of the, of the individuals that you are talking to uh, because you don't want to lose them. Uh, and for me, it's, it's always, how do, you, how do you personalize it? How do I connect this where I can, I've got a personal story, I've got a personal experience, so I can show I'm not just talking about this in an intellectual fashion, uh, but that this is something that I've experienced, that I've related to, that I, I've, I've been in your shoes, um, and you know, therefore you can trust what I'm saying. Like I said, I have a ton of information to go over. I don't even know where to go next. And this is one of the things I want to ask you because I want to really go over these a couple key things with you. Um, if you can talk about um, one of the books that you wrote specifically about the adoption and how that book, how did you form that book? How did you how did you make that transition? Were you writing writing books at the same time as while you're working on a hill? And then we'll go into you know, what you're doing now, which is absolutely amazing. I definitely want to talk about that. It's going by so quick because there's so much uh, information I can get from you, Pat. I appreciate you. Sure. So, no, I, I've got two books. I've got three books that I've written, two that I'm particularly proud of. The first one is Dad Provement, which really chronicles the adoption of our two kids. You know, I, I am fortunate. Both my children, my son will be 17 next month. As I said, my daughter uh, is 15, will be 16 in September. Um, both of my children are adopted from Guatemala. Uh, we brought our son home when he was seven months old. Uh, his sister was born uh, about six months after that. Uh, and then, uh, and then we, we brought her home when she was 13 months old. And you know, it was one of those things that I was, I was so focused, even when I was married. I, I'm still married, I should say. But you know, in, in, while I was in the middle of our marriage, I was still so focused on the career. For me, it was all about the hours I put in. It was about the accolades I got at work. It was about the clients that I won. Um, that I don't know if I was ever really prepared to become a parent. Um, and so the book Dad Provement sort of chronicles that evolution from getting married to my wife and I deciding after, after we couldn't uh, have children of our own that we wanted to adopt, and then the process of adopting from Guatemala, and then the process of building a family around that. And it really came about, I, I was in transition, I had just left my first CEO job, and every time you talk about the adoption of our kids, you know, I would tell all sorts of stories. That's what I, you, as you can tell, I, I'm, a, I'm a storyteller. And people would always say to me, oh, you really should write those things down. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to forget uh, these stories. I mean, it shapes who I am. But you know, I decided I had some free time. So literally would write this book as I was at my son. My son at the time was uh, seven years old. And I would be writing book chapters as I was watching his soccer practices at night. I'd be sitting there on the soccer field with a laptop on my lap and a folding chair writing the book. And so that's how that one came out. And then, you know, my most recent book, Dad in a Cheerbo, as I said, it, it chronicles four years of me coaching my daughter's competition cheer team. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of those that, you know, I, I could talk about how proud I am that we were a top 10 team at nationals or we took second place at globals. Um, but I am far more proud of, of how all of the young women that I've worked with, just sort of how they've evolved and, and the people that they've become. And that was a book that came about because of COVID. Um, I, was, I was one of those that for work, even when I was coaching, 
Um, I was on the road every week. I, I, I was often in a different state, meeting with a governor, raising money, setting up new programs. Uh, and then COVID brought all that to a screeching halt. And so all of a sudden I had more time than I knew what to do with. Uh, and so you know, I told my wife, I said, oh, you know what I'm going to let me, let me write the first part of this book. And then you, my wife's my best editor. And I said, you can read it and tell me if this is even worth continuing. So I wrote the first part. Then I wrote the second part. She's like, yeah, there might be something here. And so eventually it, it, it all just came out. Yeah, that's amazing. And then you transitioned to your career has, you've done so much. It's just amazing. The, you transitioned to you uh, currently, if you can tell me what you're currently doing and what specifically you're doing with this organization as a CEO. And I would like to know how you got into it. <laughs> so yeah, life after hate is one of those unique organizations. It's, it's really the first organization in the United States that was helping individuals leave uh, a life of violent extremism, uh, you know, to sort of, sort of, rebuild their lives into something that is positive and, and something that is worthwhile. Uh, and you know, it's been around for 12 years now, and it was created by former extremists. And I am actually the first individual uh, who was not a former extremist uh, that serves as CEO of this organization. And you know, at, at the heart, you know, it, it's really about de-radicalization and disengagement. Uh, you know, how do you help you? And, and, and you, I know you experienced this in your work as well as, you know, we've got people in, the, in this country that for decades, they feel alone, they feel they don't belong, they feel nobody understands and they're seeking some sort of a belonging, some sort of family. Uh, and whether it be gangs or extremist groups or whatnot, that's where they find it. Um, and so what we do is we actually work with those individuals when their ideology starts softening, when they realize that this is not how they want to spend their lives, when they realize they want to avoid prison time or they want to actually get out of prison on parole and have to demonstrate that they're ready to start a new chapter. And so we have a team that includes clinical specialists, social workers, but also includes former extremists who can work as peers and, and really help them walk through this and help them, you know, for our peer specialists in particular, they've literally walked in the same Doc Martin boots and can explain you know, the process. And you know, it, it's, when you're dealing with these individuals, it's, it's really quite something. I, th I think I, I, these, the former extremists are probably some of the strongest people that I've ever met. Because when you join these extremist groups, you give up everything you've ever known. You're willing to give up your family, your friends, your teachers, your, your church, everything you've known to be part of the group. And then if you start having that realization that you need to get out of the life, you do so with no guarantees that society is ever going to welcome you back. You, know, you don't know if you're going to be able to rent an apartment when you have a swastika tattooed on your neck. You, know, you don't know if you're going to be able to find a job when you have a prison record. And the only family you have at that point is that is your extremist group. And so you're we're willing to take the giant leap off a cliff and try to change your life again with zero guarantees and knowing that you risk physical threats if you leave that group. That society you risk society never letting you back in. And so it, you know, walking folks through that process where you know the first thing they have to do is really take accountability for what they've done in their lives. They have to own up to all of the atrocities that they've done. And then you can start working through showing them compassion and offering them second chances and those sorts of things. And, you know, it's, 
you know, for me, you know, I, I was brought in just because of my nonprofit background, that I know how to build and, and expand an organization. I know how to manage government accounts. I know how to do all of the things, I know how to tell the stories that are necessary. But it also becomes so important as you're figuring out you know, how do you protect these individuals? Because, you know, we, we have we work with people who are old school, you know, American Nazis who used to stomp heads in the streets and cities across the country. You know, you're now working with people who were part of the Charlottesville incident. You're working with people who were part of January 6th. Uh, and you're having to navigate all of these pieces at a time when we as society want to hear all those stories. Yeah, that's, that's the great thing. America, we love experiencing trauma porn. We want you as an American Nazi to tell us about the lowest moments in your life, when you've been at your absolute worst, when you've done horrific things to people. Because then we can judge you for it. You know, then we can sit there and we can, we can listen to your story and just shake our heads. And go, no matter how bad I've been in my life, I've never done that. Um, and, you know, you've had a lot of these people that have had to experience this, this trauma porn uh, because they think that's part of the redemption process. And it's not. So what is part of the redemption process? It really, I mean, it's, it's a couple of different things. The first thing, as I said, is taking accountability. Uh, is really, you know, being able to be honest, not just with us, but with themselves about what they did and why they did it. You know, the second part is, is having to come to grips and leave that hate behind and, you know, acknowledge that nothing comes from hating individuals. And some of that comes from the, you know, it's the softening of the ideology. You'll have people who, you know, for years and years and years, for instance, have been out there online in chat groups, you know, at event, you know, at, at marches, at causing all sorts of problems where they'll be talking about all these illegals who are sneaking into our country and stealing our jobs. And then all of a sudden it'll hit them that they don't know a single person in their lives who's lost a job to an undocumented immigrant. And so they start wondering and what else have, are they, have they been preaching um, that might not be true? And so you start walking them through that, realizing that there's, there's no need for them to hate these folks, helping them realize how can they begin to develop positive behaviors? Uh, you know, how do you figure out how to deal with the anger, how to deal with the distrust, uh, you know, how, to, how to deal with that seeking of, of belonging somewhere? How can they find it? How do you then help them see that there are others who have, done the, who have, who have gone through the same things, that there is a community out there that we are willing to welcome them back if they're willing to make amends, you know, if they're willing to do certain things. And then it, it really is just providing them that constant support. I mean, we get a lot of individuals that come to us because their loved ones have reached out and have said, look, you know, I, I think my boyfriend, I think my husband, uh, you know, either may, may be softening and now's the time to help get him out, or I'm really fearful that he's about to do something that he's never going to be able to walk back. And Patrick, that's what I wanted to ask you. What are some of the signs that people should look for, whether it's parents or, or friends or individuals of people that they should be looking for those signs? And um, what would those signs be? And then how would they reach out to an organization sure. like you for help? I think I mean, we, we end up hearing from people that, one, they're getting signs that an individual is looking to move more dramatically into a life of hate and violent extremism. And there you see shifts in terms of what they're talking about, the words they're using, the online chats that they're on. You see a change in the people that they're working with, how they're spending their time. 
um, you know, those sorts of things. And it becomes a real challenge because if you're a loved one and you care about that, you can't go in and sort of say to somebody, you're, you're absolutely wrong. That idea is stupid. You need to stop thinking that way. It's really a matter of diving in and, you know, trying to understand why do you believe that? You know, where, 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 where do you get that understanding? What do you think is going to happen from this? Um, you know, the other, you know, when you're trying to get them out once they've been in the life, you know, you usually have a couple of things. Either one, you're seeing, as I said before, the ideology is starting to soften. Uh, you know, you have individuals that realize they've hit rock bottom. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're facing prison time. They're about to get out of prison. Their girlfriend's going to leave them. Their wife is taking the kids away, all of those sorts of things. And it becomes that eye-opening movement for them, a moment for them. Um, you know, you have them as they're having it and they're, they're really, um, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting to see some of the struggles as they go through it because, you know, they will try, individuals will try to rationalize their behaviors. Uh, and so, you know, you'll have individuals sometimes that will say, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not a practicing extremist, but, you know, I still go to the extremist bars. I still hang out with my buddies in the movement. I'll still drink with them because that's the social life you've always engaged. And we have to explain to them that, you know, this it, it's like joining AA. You can't quit alcohol, but still go to the bars and hang out with your friends. Um, and, you know, the, the difference, of course, is once you decide to truly exit, you're talking about having to cut off that part of your life. And you run that risk of physical threat. You know, it, it's, it's no different than jumping out of a gang. Uh, if you try to leave some of these extremist groups, you put yourself at risk. Uh, and so it's a matter of helping them go through that, you know, and doing so. You know, we, when you're looking to exit, you don't trust anybody. Uh, you're certainly not going to trust us because Life After Hate has a reputation for helping people exit the movement. Life After Hate works with groups like the Department of Homeland Security. And so people aren't going to have that level of trust to start. And we have to explain, you know, we, we don't report back to the police in terms of what we are hearing. And we have our obligations to report if we know something is going to happen. Um, but we have no obligation to report on things that have happened in the past. And it takes a while for people to build that level of trust. And, you know, it, it's one of those that sometimes it can take as long to exit a violent movement uh, as you were in the violent movement itself. It can take years. Do you see extremism on the rise and why is it a problem? Extremism is definitely on the rise. You know, it's one of those things. If you trace back um, violent extremism and I, I will usually get in trouble because you know, our organization is technically our mission is to fight violent far right extremism. And people then will get into a fight with me because in the public they will say that how dare I attack Republicans? How dare I attack Trump supporters? How dare I attack those who are wearing red MAGA hats? And I have to explain, you know, when you're talking about the violent far right, it is not a political movement. You're literally talking about American Nazis. Um, you know, so <laughs> it's a clear distinction. People can wear whatever hats they want to wear. I'm talking about American Nazis. Uh, and so when we get into all of this, I mean, you, you, if we were having this conversation a couple, you know, a decade ago, extremist groups were focused on two things. They hated blacks and they, and they, they experienced misogyny in a very deep way. They also hated the Jews. Now we've built as a country this incredible system where there is a flavor of hate for just about anybody. You can hate the black community. You can hate Latinos. You can hate immigrants. You can hate undocumented immigrants. You can hate women. You can hate Muslims. You can hate Islamists. You can hate the Jews. 
You can hate the LGBTQ community. You can hate the government. All of that now comes and all of these become intersected circles. So if you want to hate, there's something for you. If you want to be physically present in your hate, we've got that. If you want to be a keyboard warrior, we now have that. So hate is everywhere. But what we're seeing now, I mean, these things happen in cycles. And so you talk to some of the, the law enforcement experts. They say, you know, 2022 was a year where a lot of these organized hate groups sort of took the time. They were going to plan. They were going to organize. 2023 is supposed to be a year of action. And, you know, you're already seeing right now, you're seeing a rise in anti-Semitic acts. You're seeing a rise clearly in anti-LGBTQ activities. You know, that is the reality of these hate groups. And they've gotten very good at figuring out what their strength is. You know, they're not, not every group does the exact same thing. You have some groups that are very good at organizing and recruiting. You have some groups that are very good at propaganda. You have some groups like the Proud Boys that are great at the muscle. And so all of that is constantly in play and constantly in churn. So, you know, it's every, every time I talk, you know, whether I'm talking to government officials, whether I'm talking to law enforcement, whether I'm talking to advocacy groups, you know, you're definitely seeing extremists, not just chatter, but activity on the rise. Is a lot of that, and I know a lot of that is the rise of social media, I think, right, in terms of that crossover being able to get there's so much misinformation out there so it's now there's there's hundreds of ways to get information how do you fight that as an organization how do you overcome that i think you touched a little bit on it like hey this is not the reality of this how do you how can you inoculate somebody from feeding into the just so much of the stuff that is a vitriol and the stuff that's online it's, I mean, there's a lot of public enga public engagement and public education that has to happen. I mean, you, there, there is a difference from grandma sharing an article that she read on Fox News before we go to Thanksgiving dinner versus your cousin sharing something he saw on 4chan or 8chan versus those who are physically willing to, to go to an, an event uh, and, and attack some Antifa protesters. And, and that becomes the first thing. There, there are levels to this. And, and we don't deal... We don't deal with, with the grandmas wanting to send uh, right-wing news articles. That's something that families can deal with themselves. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it's so much of it becomes that, that public education. One of the things we did last fall was we did a series of videos where we talked to former extremists. Uh, and uh, you know, very raw videos, we allowed them to do it in their own way, in their own space, where they could talk about why they joined the movement, you know, what it was like being in the movement. And they're willing to talk about both the good and the bad. Uh, and then what it was that drove them out. And then what life is like for them now that they're no longer in the, in the movement. And we do that for those people that are thinking about getting out. I mean, I'm never going to have an organization where we're going to target and say, okay, we're, we're going into the Oath Keepers and we're going to get 50 of them to leave the movement this year. That's not the way we work. We need to show those individuals who are active now that there are off ramps if they want to change, that they are not locked into this life just because they made that choice years ago. Uh, and so that means showing them very real people, as I said, who have literally walked in the same Doc Martens, who have done some horrific things, who have done prison time for hate crimes, um, that there is a life after. Uh, and it's that sort of thing, because I think usually, you know, it, the, the biggest obstacle to getting people to exit 
is they don't believe they have any other options. And so, you know, when you talk to individuals who have decided to leave those gangs, when you talk to individuals who have decided after everything they've done, that now is the time they can actually even, you know, with all of these hate crimes they've participated in, with the jail time they've served, they have an opportunity to go back to school and get a college degree. They have an opportunity to start looking at careers, uh, you know, beyond what they, you know, the, the basic minimum wage jobs they had in order to supply themselves with the latest weapons and the latest gear to do what they wanted to do. We have to show them their options. We have to show them their off ramps. We have to show them there are people that are willing to give them that benefit of the doubt. Do you have any success stories that have come to your organization? I'm sure you have a lot of them. Um, I know CBS News highlighted your organization because of the success and the good work you do in the community. Can you just speak uh, about one success story you've had and why that person became successful? Sure. Uh, we, We have one individual who had actually exited through our program. She now works for us. Uh, and uh, I, I think of her as one of the truly great success stories. And you know, it's one of those, you know, she she ended up joining a hate group in part because, you know, her father was in law enforcement. Her father passed away uh, and she felt that disconnect. She felt nobody understood her. She felt nobody, nobody, she didn't really belong. And so she ended up joining the movement um, and did so for years to, to the point where, you know, she had a boyfriend who stole from her mother and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, she, she did what she had to do over the years to survive. Um, and, you know, it's one of those, I think part of the reason for her success is her mother never fully gave up on her. Uh, you know, she, she wasn't living at home, but her mother never completely ostracized her. She always left that door open a crack. Uh, and after, you know, all of the years, you know, all, all, of, all of the activities, you know, all of everything that, that she had to deal with, um, and, you know, her mother ended up pressing charges against her for part of the theft. And, uh, you know, for her, you know, her, the, the door opened when she ended up building a relationship with someone uh, who actually fit the model of the people she was supposed to hate and she was supposed to wage war against. Uh, and she started realizing that she wasn't believing the, the BS that she had been preaching. Uh, and so she, you know, despite facing prison time, decided to reach out for help, not not as a way to reduce a sentence, but as a way to change her life. And, you know, her, her mother was willing to help her. We were willing to help her. Uh, and, uh, you know, over the years, she just becomes such an enormous success story. I, it's I'm so incredibly proud of, of the woman that Lauren is now and the impact that she has on others uh, that that we work with. Um, you know, it's, it's she she is a very real and truthful and powerful voice when she is working for those who are looking to get out of the movement uh, because she she has done exactly that. And she you know, it, it is one of those that you wouldn't necessarily have believed she was in the far right movement. And then you hear her stories and then you wonder how in the world did she get out? So she just becomes such an such a, an inspiration for folks. And she did it because of herself. Nobody forced her to exit. She she decided she needed to change her life. And each and every day, I believe she wakes up to prove that she made the right decision. Yeah. One of the things I really like that you say, Patrick, is that no matter what any of us have done in our lives, in our lives, there's never a point where you can't change. There's no never a point where you can't change that narrative. 
And I know you have a background in education. Um, especially, I really, really I appreciate the fact that you're really grounded in, in American history and, and civics. Is there any books or anything out there that people, I know you have, um, you were part of a foundation. What's a good way for people to go back in time and, and look at our history, read, read good books about, foundational books about American history that they can trust? Do you have any recommenda recommendations on how people can do that? I, I think it, it's it's I, I could I could start running through a list. I think one of the one of the challenges to that is and it's, it's weird with all of the politics we deal with now and the fights about history in different states and what we're allowed to teach and what we're not allowed to teach. History becomes very personal. Um, and so, you know, if, if you think back, you know, when you and I were in school, you know, we had these boring textbooks. They give you these big, thick textbooks that were supposed to tell you, you know, 200 years of American history that we were all going to learn in 180 days. Uh, and, and none of us really learned it. And I think you know, if there's anything that I've experienced, it's, it's, you know, with young people in particular today, um, you know, they largely find the teaching of history both boring and irrelevant. And so, you know, what, what becomes the most exciting is figuring out, you know, what, how do we make that interesting? How do we make it relevant? How do you tell the stories that you're not necessarily going to get in the classroom? Uh, you know, nobody's going to get inspired to learn American history because we learned that George Washington supposedly had wooden teeth. Um, you know, we all know that, that Abraham Lincoln was president during the Civil War. That's not going to get anybody's juices flowing. Uh, and so, you know, part of the work that we've done with with our nonprofit and trying to tell teach a lot of these untold stories of history uh, is really, you know, how what role do African Americans play in the founding of this country? And you, you know, I, I can tell stories about uh, uh, Madame Queenie in New York City, for instance, who not only was a, a tremendously successful gangster in her own right but created the first banking system for blacks in New York City because the banks wouldn't take money from black citizens. Um, you know, you can talk about the role that Latinos have played in this country, which we often, you know, at best, if we get anything, you sort of get those 1970s, you know, this is the role that the Chicano movement played in labor relations in California, maybe. Um, but we don't get into those roles. And, you know, it's, it's starting to find those stories because, yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's... It's finding that personal connection. It goes back to the question you asked about how do you successfully communicate? Uh, you know, when you're when you're wanting to learn American history, you you focus on what the individual cares about, and I think that's that's the mistake we've long made in teaching this. I mean, learning American history is about going down a rabbit hole. It's not about sitting there and listening to a Ken Burns documentary for the next 18 hours about something that you weren't that interested in to begin with. Uh, it's about learning about an individual or an artifact or an event that you were never taught and then wondering, why didn't I learn that? Why didn't they teach me that? What else is there that I didn't learn? That's where it becomes very, very exciting. I mean, it's it, and it's one of those. I mean, as, as the son of a presidential historian, you know, I, one of my favorite stories is the story of Samuel J. Tilden, who you know, was in, in the late 1800s, was literally elected president of the United States by popular vote. And then the House of Representatives took it away from him. Uh, and, you know, for some of us, we like think, oh, yeah, that, that's, that, that, that sort of thing never really happened until 2000 when, uh, when George W. Bush, you know, lost the popular vote 
to Al Gore, but then won when the House of Representatives and the Electoral College cast their vote. It's not true. We've got that. But that's what I find interesting. Um, you probably have a very, very different level of interest, the things that get you going that you're going to connect to. And I think that's, that's what becomes so wonderful about history uh, is it can be personalized. You can find those stories. You know, if I, I look when, when my, my son, as I said, is, is dyslexic when he was younger and he had to read for school every day. The only thing he wanted to read was Car and Driver magazine. And you know, his teacher said, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. He should be reading novels. He should be doing this. I'm like, he should be reading. So if he wants to read Car and Driver, he's reading. Um, if you want to learn history, it's not for me to say, you know, you really should sit down. You know, the, the, you know, the best written book I've ever seen is, is McCullough's bio, biography of, of Harry Truman. That's my, my favorite, hands down, better than anything my father's even written. But for a lot of people, they don't want to sit there and read 600 pages about Harry Truman. So how do you find that connection? I know we only have a few more minutes. So I'm going to ask you, how do you, how do you find that connection? If you're a teacher or if you're somebody lecturing people or if you're, if you're a, a, a leader or a CEO in an organization, I think you still have to draw that connection to draw people in. How do you do that? And what kind of steps or advice do you give people to do that? I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're a corporate CEO, you're a teacher, you're a nonprofit leader, whatever you are. It's about knowing the people that you're working with. It's about understanding what motivates them and what interests them. Um, you know, and it's it, it means actually having to take the time and listen to the folks that you're working with. Uh, and I think that that becomes the most important thing. I think that's that's where we've gone off the rails in terms of education is we think that people today are still homogeneous. You know, we just, everybody learns at the same pace. Everybody wants to learn the same things. Everybody has the same abilities. None of us do. Um, in fact, we're, we're more diverse than we've ever been before. Uh, and I think you know, it's it, so much of it also comes from learning from failures. I and mean, when you're talking about you know, how, how, how does the CEO come in and motivate and those sorts of things, how many stories do we have to hear about corporate CEOs who completely failed as a result of COVID. That, you know, we're sitting there and having employees risk their lives and doing all sorts of things. Like, thank goodness for you. Today we're giving you a pizza party, but no one's allowed to have more than two slices because that's all we allotted for. Uh, and so, you know, congratulations for all of your hard work. Um, it doesn't work that way. No matter who we are, we all want to be valued as human beings. We want to believe that what we think, we want to believe that how we feel, what motivates us, is of interest to somebody else. Um, you know, if, if we want to be preached at for all the things we are doing wrong and all the things we don't know, we can go to church for that. Um, but if you're going to spend your time in the workplace, yeah, the paycheck's important, but you should actually enjoy what you're doing. If you're going to spend your time in a classroom, particularly a college classroom where you're having to write a check or you're having to take out loans, you should enjoy that and feel that you get to help impact what it is you're being taught. Um, you know, when, when you look at it at the end of the day, you know, we, we can talk about the problems across this country uh, about over, this, over the decades about high school dropout rates. You look at the reason why kids drop out of high school. They don't drop out of high school because it's too hard. They drop out of high school in, for the large part because they don't see the relevance or importance for being there. That's true about life. 
And that's why it becomes so important to make that connection is you know, what we do needs to be relevant to who I am. Um, you know, that's, you know, and I can tell you, I'm doing focus groups about teaching American history. I remember doing a focus group in New York City with a group of African-American students. And you could sort of say, okay, why in the world would they care about Franklin Roosevelt's presidency? And then we had all of a sudden, one girl had that aha moment where as we're walking through this, all of a sudden it connects with her that Franklin Roosevelt established Social Security and Medicare. And that was something that was so important in her family. And so there was a reason to learn because you know, Franklin Roosevelt created the social security system. So there was a reason to learn. Still wasn't going to get her juices going. It wasn't her reason for learning. But at least she understood why that was important to her life. Um, you know, we, we've reached the point, if we think that we are going to motivate in the schools or motivate in the communities or motivate in the workplace just because of what dead white male landowners once thought, we're going to completely miss the boat. Yeah, I think it's like you said, you have to find out what's important um, for the people that work with you, work for you, and tap into those passions that they're, so that you're more successful as an organization, as a team. And man, Patrick, I, I could go on forever with you. I have to ask you our, my final, um, my, my uh, wonderful questions I always ask at the end for fun. So... But I really appreciate you being here because there was so much insight and you have so much to give. And I just appreciate the time you've given us today. So, okay. So if you could be one superhero, who would it be and why? Um, if I were going to be one superhero and, and I have to, I have to set it aside because uh, I, I, I will declare, I don't think Batman is a superhero. He's just a rich dude who buys stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I would, I would probably select uh Iron Man or Wonder Woman. Um, Iron Man for the intellect, Iron Man for uh, for the effort that he puts in, and, and you know, it helps being a billionaire. Um, but the reason why I, I would say Wonder Woman is more than any other superhero, she has a cause. She's doing it for a reason other than just to save the world. Yeah, I love that. Okay, what would the older self tell the younger self if you had to go back and give yourself advice? What, that, what kind of advice would you give yourself? The younger I, I version of we, Patrick. Don't take yourself so seriously. Um, it, it's, I, I, I made the mistake of spending from when I started college until I got married when I was 28 years old. I never once took a vacation because work was too important to me, that, that, that was too important. I am never going to be able to get back those times and those experiences that I missed out on because I was focused on work. Uh, and I think that, that is a lesson that I continue to try to learn. It's something that uh, I am very good at preaching to my team, um, that quite frankly, you, know, I, you can get hit by a bus tomorrow and work will replace you the next day. Um, so you don't need to give your life to us. You give us what we're paying for. I still struggle with that, but that would be the best advice I'd give. What's your guilty pleasure food wise? Oh, I'm, I'm a Jersey guy. It's pizza. No question. Uh, <laughs> worst part about being in South Carolina is the pizza. The pizza is garbage. Uh, best thing about being a dad. watching my kids learn and make their own decisions and their own mistakes. Um, you know, when, when, when I started off as a father, I assumed my kids were going to go down a certain path and 
now that they're both teenagers, I can fully admit how wrong I was uh, and how exciting it is to watch them discover what drives them. Uh, best thing about uh, best thing about being a dad, a cheer dad. <laughs> the best thing about being a cheer dad is whether it's with my own daughter or with my 19 cheer daughters is for four years, I heard them with no filter. Uh, my girls trusted me. They would say things in front of me that would probably make other parents gasp. Um, and but they would also come to me. And so I think that the fact that I was able to build that sort of relationship, build that sort of trust uh, and, you know, love all of those girls like they were my daughters. Uh, favorite place to travel. My happy place is Grand Cayman Island. And then this is the last is the last question. Um, when you're no longer on this earth, what do you want to remember? What do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for being a good husband. I want to be remembered for being a good father. Uh, and I want to be remembered for doing work that, even if people never noticed it, made a difference in improving people's lives. Yeah, I, I love that. Can't get more impactful than that. Um, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and your organization um, for your for your services or any other services that you provide, What's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. It, it's all, and I would say, if you go to our website, it's, you know, lifeafterhate.org. The problem is you see there, there are no staff lists. There are no board members simply because uh, you, you don't want to see the threats that I get in my email box uh, every day. But anybody has any questions or anything, you can email me, Patrick, at, at lifeafterhate.org. I promise I get back to you uh, and, uh, and we'll help you however we can. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Thank, I want to thank all my listeners for listening. We went a little long today, but it was just such insightful, great information. Thank you for being here. If you like the podcast, give it a thumbs up, and we'll see you next time. In the meantime, keep learning. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, sir.